Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 51. I'm Jamie Berger. Today will be part two of my conversation with Michael Ian Black. But before we get to that, I'm going to share with you a little story from Elna Baker that did not make it into uh, episode 48 and that I think is particularly apt right now. The other thing about fame that I find interesting is like, because I, I worked for five years at Nobu, which is this really fancy restaurant that De Niro owns. And I was a hostess. And so all these famous people would come in. Well, I just I just think it's like, part of my own resistance to it is seeing seeing the behavior and also seeing I don't know. I find famous people disturbing, <laughs> like super famous people. I find them a little bit disturbing. But I, rem- I mean, it just feels like, um, like there was this one um, male celebrity okay. um, that narrows it down. That yeah, that narrows it down. Um, that I, he had a personal chef, right? And so he had come in with a personal chef and then his personal chef like hit on me and then ended up like hanging out with me. Uh, but I was Mormon then. So he kept like pressuring me to, to have sex or like making fun of me. And when I really was like, I'm not, you know, I really don't do that. And he was like, well, hold on. And he called the celebrity up to get the celebrity to tell me to lose my virginity. Great. And... It was, it was just such a strange, uh, I don't know. And, and the thing that I thought of when I was on the phone with a celebrity was he had told me that, um, he and the celebrity, um, would like to play this game where like, they're so, he's so wealthy. He has so much that, um, to actually buy a thing, it's kind of meaningless because mm-hmm. it, it, you know, you can buy anything. Yeah. But you can't buy um, you can't buy a person and a person making choices or breaking their own character. That's a thing you can't buy. And so that they like to test people as a game because that was the unachievable thing. There was like a guy on set uh, who was married and you know had a great family and would always sort of talk about his sort of Christian family values and so they they were shooting something in Japan and they sent um, this beautiful uh, hooker to his room and he ended up sleeping with the hooker. And that to them was like, like such an achievement. Yeah. Cause it, you said you can't buy a person's decisions, but I guess the, the great glory for them is that you can sometimes. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's like, that's part of what, what they push towards. And so, and I I remember another time, um, there was a a senator and, uh, who I love, right. And not actually like, he's not central to the story. It's just that it surprised me because it was, so there was this guy who would always come into Nobu who was like a drug dealer. Right. And, uh, we had to always. Uh, if he walked in, even if the restaurant was totally full, we had to get him a table. And 
and he was always, I always felt kind of afraid of him. Basically he, he carried himself in such a way that one would feel afraid of him. And so it was like a busy crowded night and was there. A Senator was there. And then this guy walked in and the Senator jumped up to be like, Oh, Hey, you know, and said this guy's name. And then, and they all like stood in the circle and were like, like happily chatting, you know? And, and then while this was happening, the, um, the Senator was there with this, like on a date with this like blonde girl, um, who was very like dainty Martha's Vineyardy woman. And as he was talking in this group, he put his hand up her skirt and started fingering her, but no one could see, but me where I was standing at this hostess podium. And so I could see her kind of like doing this like fidgety, smiley, but still trying to maintain this conversation. And I, and I, I feel like it was just such a, I was like, wait, so the, the drug dealers, the celebrities, the politicians, they're all friends and they finger people in public. <laughs> this is, you know, this is not true of actually like a lot of the people that I know who made it. Um, and are now famous. I, I feel like this is this this is not a blanket statement across celebrity, but I do find that um, hanging out with insanely wealthy, famous, or powerful people, uh, there's this idea I feel like that these people uh, care about the masses, care about others. But anytime I've actually like observed them, they're just talking about like getting richer or getting another thing. And they just don't give a shit about other people. That was from my conversation with Elna Baker. Again, that's episode 48. And it got cut because it was a really dark turn at the end of our conversation that happened before, <laughs> um, before all the shit started going down, starting with Harvey and Louie and... Today, I suppose we could call, today is November 29th, 2017, which we could, from now on, just call uh, Garrison Keeler Matt Lauer Day. But while Elna focused on fame and power leading to a greed for owning more shit, and eventually you run out of shit to own, and so you start wanting to, I don't know, we could all make a theory about what it is and whether it's power itself. Uh, I've heard too many people on TV, on the radio, talking about how this isn't really about gender. It's about power. I've heard a lot of men saying it. I've heard a couple of women too. But I think we should all call bullshit on that because with men in all the power positions, you're never going to prove it true or false. And regardless, it's time to give women a couple millennia at the helm to test that theory out. Last week, you may remember, I talked a little at the beginning of the show about how I believe that men should start to reckon with their own pasts and figure out how to do better. Individual men, specific situations. So while we look at these famous people, it's important to look inward. And while the power of a movie executive isn't the same as ours, or most of ours, it's still important to also accept and 
reckon with the power that we each have and how we wield it. And that, that seems like a ridiculously strong word for my life, wielding power. But that's what we do. That's what everyone does. All men do. Women do too in different ways. But we're talking about men. And when I began my reckoning, uh, I started to think about you. Know, I told you the story about the person whose photo I made an inappropriate comment about. And I thought about another story involving my friend Beth Lissick, who will be the next guest on the show. And we'll talk about it then. And all these, these situations that were coming up to me were of a personal friend relationship that I screwed up in some way. And all along I was thinking to myself as not someone with power and comparing myself to these rich, famous people and being like, well, that's them. This is a different situation. I don't have any power. And then I realized what complete bullshit that is because it didn't have to be a famous comedian and a senator and a big New York drug dealer. It could be the dude with a meth lab. This could be in suburban Ohio and the dude with a meth lab and the mayor and the vice principal of the school at a restaurant. Happens everywhere. So in terms of my own power, here's day two of reckoning. What power have I had? Well, for the past 10 years, I've been the co-owner of a bar and restaurant. And I thought back, and I know I haven't done anything that anyone would call abusive, but it's the little micro stuff that we have to think about. Did I make off-color puns because I can never resist making puns that an employee might have wished they could say, that's really inappropriate, Jamie, but they felt they couldn't? I don't know. Maybe. Did I give a compliment? I can be a little too playful with both male and female staff. I don't know. But I know that, like I talked about last week, that if I'm ever in that kind of situation again, there is no gray area. You see a gray area? Don't get near the fucking gray area. You don't get to say, we don't get to say, I don't get to say, oh, we were just messing around. We were flirting. I thought it was all in good fun. Get away from the gray area. It's really not that complicated. When that person is no longer your employee, or as I'll get to in a minute, your student, go ask them out. Go flirt with them. Take your shot. But not while you have the power. The other lifelong situation in which I have had some abusable power is as a teacher and tutor of teens and adults. And the one thing I want to note about that is that if you teach long enough, you will probably find someone, some student, who you realize might be sort of developing a crush on you. And a couple weeks ago, someone on Twitter was taken brutally to task for writing about uh, how Roy Moore isn't such a bad guy because you all know what vixens those 14-year-olds can be. Wow. You know what you do? In that position of power, when you get an inkling, someone has a crush on you, you make it clearer than clearer than clear that that can't happen. You don't, I've never had to say anything to a student, but you just get more formal. You become more distant. There's no like, oh, but I could mentor. No, you get the fuck away from the gray area. And yeah, this is me being self-righteous. No teacher should ever get in that kind of trouble. Period. So, I urge you all, fellers, 
to think about your positions of power and how you might have intentionally or unintentionally abused them and how we can do better. I want to thank you all for putting up with these last couple weeks. I think these intros are going to get shorter and shorter, but I really needed to use my little forum to talk to you about this stuff. I'm learning how to talk about this stuff in public by talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. All righty. Now for the fun stuff. If you want to know more about who this Michael Ian Blackfellow is that I am about to speak to, I'm about to have spoken to three months ago, I highly recommend episode 50 of this very podcast in which I give a much more detailed introduction to the man. He is a writer, comedian, and host of a great podcast called How to Be Amazing. In this episode, we start off where we left off last week, which was we were about to talk about toenail fungus. I actually thought about editing that out just now, but I promised it last time, so toe fungus it is. We go on to talk about his fraught relationship with comedian and podcaster Mark Marin and the beautiful, horrible conversations they have had live on the air, both on Mark's What the Fuck podcast and uh, in a Gothamist interview and on Twitter. And I steal the five questions format that Michael uses at the end of his show to ask him five questions. We recorded on August 31st on Skype. And here it is, episode 51. Hope you enjoy it. Your dad's toenails. My toenails. My dad has the toenails. I haven't gotten the toenails yet. Right. Uh, right. I had uh, uh, the, the fungus, whatever that's called, on my toenails. In writing the book, uh, I finally got it dealt with. Oh, he never, he tried. Nobody ever could cure it for him. Well, I think there's medications now that, uh, oral medications that, that take care of it. So uh, when, when I first asked about it, I was advised not to take it because it's hard on the liver. But then when I went to see my doctor a few years ago, she was like, yeah, you're, you're healthy. It, it, will, it will be fine. And so she gave me the medication. You take it for I don't know how long. And then uh, as your toenails grow out, they grow in clear. I, I now have pretty, pretty clear toenails. It's, I can wear Birkenstocks now. <laughs> but you don't have to. <laughs> oh, no, I have to. Uh, I can wear flip-flops. I can, I can go barefooted on the beach without remorse. Uh, I can't take off my shirt because I'm morbidly obese, but the rest of it. I also feel morbidly obese, but we're both lying. Right. When my mom, here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress with one little mom story. My mom was always, so was always like a little too involved in when I had a little belly. Cause I just genetically, I grow a little belly, skinny guy, a little belly. And she would pat it or she would make some little comment. And when she was dying, she took me into her room and to, like to have a real conversation. She said, honey, when I die, you're probably going to gain some weight. <laughs> I swear to God. And she said, and that's okay. <laughs> and it was a very oddly moving moment. It was kind of like her acknowledging, you know, that, but the problem is I've only gained weight for those nine years. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
So, having been someone who just dove into you and Mark's ongoing conversation over the years, have you? I 2013 is the last thing I found. The Gothamist thing is that the last time you guys have talked? And this is Mark Maron I'm talking about audience. Oh, I'm sure we've spoken since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we I tweeted at him recently. Oh, oh, I said that I I I grudgingly grudgingly had to admit that he's very good in Glow. <laughs> On that Netflix show. Yeah. And he just, you know, he, he responded the way he does. Right. Thanks, pal. <laughs> I, I grudgingly admit that he's good in things all the time. Um, okay. So here's my theory that may be incredibly dumb that would solve everything. Although there's also part of me that thinks that you two in 1993 were like, let's do a bit for the rest <laughs> of our lives. So I could be being played for a sucker here. No, he would he wouldn't talk to me in 1993. Okay. Okay. Starting at about so in 1993 you were about how old? 22 and he was about 29? Sure. 28? Yeah. So a little little older. Wait, but I'll get to that. Starting around in around 10 minutes in the 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 WTF episode which for my money you two <laughs> is amazing radio. Thank you. Um uh so starting at around 10 minutes, he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, I was typing it quickly, back when we were coming to, to Luna, I was a sweaty, defensive, hostile Jew, and you were doing your thing. Doing my what thing? Just, you were doing your thing. Uh-huh. Which seems to suggest, like, contrary to being a sweaty, hostile Jew. And then a couple minutes later, he asks you your background, and you tell him you're a Jew, 100% Jewish? And from New Jersey, and he can't believe it. <laughs> I think he saw you as, and it was, it was, you know, it was '93 or whatever, right? I'm, I'm going to use an offensive word. He saw you as a younger, handsome, skinny, faggy wasp who was coming in and not telling jokes and getting all the attention and all the girls. I think if he could say that to you and say, "Yes, I thought all of those things about you," and they were, they were wrong. Then I think you you would ruin your bit and you'd, you'd be friends forever. <laughs> well, I mean, since that conversation, uh, we certainly have not been friends forever. Although we, I will say that we get along much better now than we ever did uh, before I was on his podcast. Um, yeah, I don't think that's wrong. He 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 saw me as um, I think he thought I was entitled in some way, privileged, and that couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, I think he saw me maybe the way some people see like John Mulaney, this sort of like confident young kid uh, who's getting a lot of attention. And the truth is like his perception of me could not have jived less with my perception of myself. I certainly didn't think I was getting attention. I certainly didn't think I was getting laughs and I certainly wasn't getting girls. I was getting some girls, but probably no more than him. But, you know, and he will, he will, he, I think he, he would admit he felt like it was him against the world and I happened to be in the world. Um, and so it was him against me. I found it um, upsetting because I, I really thought he was smart and interesting and a good comic uh, and, a, and a good personality. Um, and I wanted his respect. And 
And I, you know, to this day, I don't think I have it, which is just fine. I've come to terms with that. Yeah. You were talking about, um, his, 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 his needing, uh, in his later years, what's the word you use? Uh, not redemption, uh, making amends. Um, and, and I feel like he wants to make amends. But the place he's come is to the place of wanting to make amends, but he's still not that good at yeah, it. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard for everybody. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I was going to say, I feel like I occupy the moral high ground with Mark, but I don't, I'm such a dick to him. Oh no. You're, yeah. You're a dick too. I mean, the last sentence of that episode is amazing. You are leading up to, I can find it verbatim. You're getting to the point where he's like, he's like, I don't know. Are, are we good? And you're like, oh shit. And he's like, I don't, I don't feel like we're good. And, and you start to say something really kind of warm and fuzzy. And then you get to when you die, <laughs> beat, 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 I'll feel good. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it, it's so mean and wonderful. Uh, uh, so, that that's why I think it's great. Um, but I feel like it, it, him against the world and him against his own internalized anti-Semitism, that he was a sweaty Jew and you were a pretty non-Jew. And fairly, fair, I was fairly sweaty as well and, and remain fairly sweaty just as a emotionally. I'm emotionally sweaty. I have very good uh, HVAC where I am, but emotionally, as a Jew, you need that. But emotionally, very sweaty. You're both very good at being mean to each other, um, it, it, and you know that it, that in the end you're both going to be fine with it in like in an hour. I would never go after somebody that I felt like couldn't take it, and Marin can take it, Marin can dish it, uh, yes. and you know it comes ultimately. It comes from a place of love might be too strong a word, but maybe not. Maybe it's not too too strong a word. Um, I, I, I do want, uh, I want him to be happy and at peace. Um, and I think, and I think he's getting there. Yes. The Gothamist phone call you had a couple years, uh, four years ago, I guess, really, I felt that at the end. And I think you both felt better at the end. Uh, did he really know you, you remember this, that he, it seemed like he didn't know you were the person going to be calling him. He was getting a call from Gothamist. Oh, uh, I don't remember whether he knew or not. Wait, I'm looking it up. Because if you listen to it, that's the way it seems. You call me like, hi, this is Michael. And you guys had just had a Twitter battle. <laughs> and Gothamist thought I'd be good to call you. And he says, really? <laughs> and, then, and then it starts right in. He says, you do what you got to do, Michael. Hey, everybody. Jamie cutting in here three months after the fact. Here's the beginning of that Gothamist interview. And you can find it just by Googling Mark Maron, Michael Ian Black, Gothamist, just to give you a bit of a flavor of their conversations. And you can also search for uh, their hour-plus convert long conversation on uh, Mark Maron's WTF podcast. Mark? Yeah? Can you hear me? I can. Good. Uh, this is Michael Ian Black from Gothamist. I'll be interviewing you today. They what? Saw that we, yeah, they saw that we were beefing on Twitter yesterday, so they suggested that I interview you. And I said, fuck, I'll do that. I'll annoy him. That's fine, Michael. You do what you have to do. It's not about what I have to do. 
It's what I choose to do because I want to delve deeper into Mark than, say, you delved into me during our recording. <laughs> I want to make All this right. a positive experience for you. I'm, I'm, I'm open to that, Michael. It's, it's nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Yep, yep, I'm looking at it. Uh, now, I feel like I'm looking at my own questions. Mm-hmm. There's audio somewhere. Right. I'm, I'm just yeah. sort of reading the transcript, and I don't, I'm not asking anything provocative here. No, no. It went much better. I mean, yeah. you also had more control in a sense. Right, right. Um, and this is before I had my own podcast uh, where I interview people. So I, I, just glancing at this, it looks like it went fine. Yeah, and it ended, it ended nicely. You, you said pretty much what you said to me, and he took it. Uh, are you, you haven't had Mark on, right? No, 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 no. I don't even know if he'd do it. He probably feels like I'm ripping him off by having a an interview podcast. Uh, I feel like any if you challenge him, he's got, he's gonna say yes. Oh, he might. Yeah, he might. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Here, this is me quote, quoting me right now, and I basically just said the same thing that I just said to you. I hope the show is a success, meaning his new show that uh, the Mark Maron show would, would uh, and it. That brings you more than anything a level of happiness and serenity that you deserve even more than the professional success. I know I'll be watching. I remain a committed fan of yours. And I wholeheartedly accept all your past apologies and future apologies and offer my own for the shit I will inevitably write about you on Twitter as soon as we get off the phone. Well, (laughs) and he says, well, I'll respond to that. But from a clean slate, I think we should start working towards the next apology as soon as we get off the phone. (laughs) I, I know I don't speak just for myself when I say I hope you two never completely make up, but oh no, well, uh, and that you keep doing this from time to time. Of course, of course. It's now, now it's now it has defined our relationship, and I think we both enjoy it. There's got to, you know, it, there there is something wonderful that comedians can do to each other, um, which is rag on each other mercilessly. <laughs> that in any other relationship it would destroy any other relationship but in from a comedian to comedian it's a mark of love i felt like i never you know you've talked about training for running i feel like everything could be sports analogies exist and they're cliches because they make sense mm-hmm. they're they're true and i spent a year you're going you're coming to Cobb soon right yeah yeah i i spent a year doing the circuit in san francisco when there wasn't it was all just shitty shitty cafes and the same guys every night and I'm I'm just a sensitive little girl boy, and I didn't get in shape to hang out with comics. And after a year, I just like <laughs> just I couldn't I couldn't get in shape to take the abuse. You know, I'm like, can't you say you like something I did? No. Yeah. What would be the point of that? Yeah. What would be the point of being supportive? There's there would be none. No point in that. God, I'm just remembering. I I even went to a coach for a few weeks. Who pretty much said be more Jewy. That's weird advice. And that that also was a hallmark of my. You know, I, I went from performance art to trying to, you know, joke punchline, joke punchline. I, I sucked, but he also was no help. No, that, I mean, with advice like that, I'm not surprised he was not a help. He didn't say it in those words. He said maybe some more humor about your ethnicity. I, you know, he was selling a, a product. Yes, he was. What did that cost you? I don't. <laughs> it was in the 90s too much yeah from my bartending and uh, test prep teaching jobs at the time 
you you always talk about being on shows that die quickly. Are you still are either of the shows you were on recently still? Uh, well, the shows that I've been on in the last couple of years are the Jim Gaffigan show, which which is no more. Uh, Wet Hot American Summer, which is I don't know if it's if we're going to do anymore. I suspect not. Uh, we just have a new there's a new season that just came out and another period, uh, which, uh, I don't know if we'll do more or not, but it, it, the new season of that comes out in February. So two of the three are still in existence. I'm going to hit you with two sets of, of five questions. I'm going to call them the, the famous five. All right. First we'll, we'll do the ones I'm just straight up stealing from you. Food. Uh, today tacos. Mm -hmm. What kind of tacos? Um, I'm enamored with any taco, anything that any sort of meat that you can encase in a tortilla uh, and put on, put something else on top, some vegetables some cheese some peppers, what have you. Just any taco by definition, I'm enamored with. Uh, I like, I like everything about the taco, but I'm getting particularly uh, choosy about the tortilla. I feel like there's a lot of bad tortillas out there, and I, 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 I particularly if you're making them yourself. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about making them yourself? Sometimes, sometimes. And I'm also talking about purchasing. But I made tacos this week. Uh, Bobby Flay, I think, has this pre-made taco sauce that's just great uh, that I use. Um, I also added some other ingredients, but that was great. And the tortillas that I found in my local uh, supermarket were not Mission. Mission makes terrible tortillas. But there's this other one I found, and I don't recall the name, but they were very good. Okay. Uh, I'm more of a burrito person myself. Could be the San Francisco years. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, music? Well, before you call, I've been, I've been uh, just working, and uh, work music for me has been uh, – uh, a challenge because I can't have anything with lyrics and I can't have anything with a beat. So, but I like to have a little something on. So, uh, 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 Brian Eno. Okay. Like music for airports, old Brian Eno. Same. Yeah. I can work with a beat. So it doesn't have to be purely ambient like that for me. Uh, book. You can go plural if you No, I'm going to go with one. I'm reading it now, and I can't say it's a good book, but I'm such a sucker for these kinds of books that not only do I read them, I look forward to reading them, and it's the thing that I probably enjoyed reading the most, even though it's the worst book I've written, uh, read in a while. It's, it's called Jack Dawes by Ken Follett. And it's a World War II uh, caper. Uh, and Follett, I always enjoy and always hate myself for enjoying because it's just this kind of stylized 70s miniseries dialogue. Uh, and he's not a bad writer. I mean, there's, there's like he's, he's a good descriptive writer. And I mean, his plots are stupid as fuck. It's books like this. But it's enjoyable. It's a summer read. Yeah, I guess. I don't even know what year it came out. Um, years ago, I think. I, I used to read a lot of John Le Carre because it let me not feel quite so guilty for reading the. But John, but he's a great writer. 
Great writer. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a thriller and a caper and a, you probably know what the next question is. I probably do, but I can't think of what we had in a, a movie or a, a TV or movie. Yeah. I watch so little. We just look, the only thing I've been enjoying is game of Thrones, but it's so hacky to say game of Thrones because everybody already watches it. Wow. How could I be stumped on? <laughs> um, Let me tell you my current three. Yeah. Uh, better call Saul. Yeah. Uh, Westworld that won't cheer you up, uh, but it's really good. And again, I'm a decade late to the game, but in this time of stress, watch one Parks and Rec. You might be really happy. It's like a balm. It's like a salve to pour on yourself. Oh, I'm sure I'd like it. I, okay, so now you had a chance. Anything besides Game of Thrones? I'm looking at my Netflix to see what I've watched. Oh, I was watching uh, Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States. I do love documentaries, and, uh, you know, it's very obviously lefty and left-leaning. Um, but what I like about it is that it presents a counter-narrative to American history as we are taught it. And I'm I'm very much in favor of counter narratives, uh, and and very much in favor of looking at America from underrepresented viewpoints. So, uh, you know, so you get your Howard Zins of the world, and your, and your Noam Chomsky's of the world, and um, Oliver Stones, and uh, you know, I have a certain sympathy towards the left. Although I don't know that I, I don't know that I necessarily identify as a as a as a full on lefty, um, but it's I would say it's worth watching. It's worth it's worth watching just 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 to get a different point of view. Miscellaneous. There's two. I have two. One of them is uh, easily obtainable. One of them is less easily obtainable. The more easily obtainable is just UGG slippers, which I wear. Uh, in the house and often to the grocery store, I have two pair and they wear out after about a year. So you have to re replace them. Um, but they're, they're lined with UGG stuff, you know, sheepy stuff. And they're just very comfortable. I, 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 even though I could now walk around barefoot because I have uh, crystal clear toenails, I, I prefer wearing the UGG slippers. The other thing that I do on a daily basis now is start my morning uh, with uh, a soak in the hot tub, which my wife and I put in when we moved into our new house. We have a hot tub, and I find it uh, – I use it as a way to clear my mind and, and start – as a way to start thinking about the, the, the creative work ahead for the day, uh, something about warm water and bubbles in uh, nature all combined to make a fantastic start of the day experience in the hot tub. In San Francisco, uh, I lived in a two little two-story Victorians next to each other, and we were all friends, and we shared a backyard, and somebody gave us a hot tub when they were moving. And not only did it do that for me, it also, as someone with body issues like you, <laughs> uh, made me much more comfortable just being naked in front of people and being like, we all look like fucking people. Uh, all right. Before I give you the, the other five that I've made up, 
just for fun, I'm going to tell you the things that people recommended me to check out of yours, just so you know what people still... You probably... Some of them are obvious. Monkey torture. A McSweeney's piece. Have you ever eaten a baby from uh, millions of years ago? $240 worth of pudding. Several people picked. I'm I'm more of the... Uh, the monkey torture, Python-esque kind of guy. Uh, and if you if you look for monkey torture, the parrot sketch comes on after on YouTube. Oh, that's nice. So you you are you are yes, in in good company there. Yeah, very good company. Here's a piece that nowadays is was hard. If I had a slave, if I had a slave, I always thought was it's the kind of thing I liked doing, and and the and and the uh, the premise is. If I had a slave, what a good slave owner I would be and how kind and generous uh, I would be as a slave owner. And there's something very funny to me about the awful person presenting himself as the good person, the bad guy presenting himself as the good guy. Like that that kind of thing I always find funny. And uh, I used to perform it uh, in my stand-up. Always, always knowing that it could easily go wrong and that uh, people could could turn on me very, very quickly. Uh, and they didn't. Some, I'm sure I'm sure some people in the audience were like, oh, no, 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 no. And nobody ever approached you after. No, no. I mean, it was clearly in bad taste. I wouldn't do it now just because. The sensitivity to racial issues in particular, and and I'm very clear, and I'm not very clear, but I I purposely don't don't make it clear like what kind of slave. I'm not necessarily saying like you know it could be anybody. It could be anybody. I, I yeah that that excuse isn't going to work that way. <laughs> in my mind, in my mind, that was always uh, a, a justification. I'm not saying it's a good one, but I'm that was always a justification. Um, but uh, no, I wouldn't do it now because the because the, there's just too much racial sensitivity and and correctly so. I mean, it's it's just gotten bad out there, and and I just don't want to. There's just no reason to stir that hornet's nest at the moment. Okay, so now my uh, the, ja the Jamie five for you are, and I think this might be hard for you to think of because you might be, like, but I'm going to give you five things and ask what your favorite work of yours in this mode is like what if you can remember okay, from a tv a scene a bit from a tv series or movie i like the I, i'm not going to pick a single thing because it i don't know that i can but i i always really liked the stella television show we did one season of it on comedy central i thought it was really innovative and funny um nobody watched it and it was unceremoniously dumped. But uh, I always, I thought that the writing on it was really strong and the, 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 the ambition of it was pretty grand. And uh, I was really proud of it. Podcast episode or episodes? Um, just as a moment from how to be amazing, I did ask and he did answer uh, I asked David Sedaris how much money he makes, and he did tell me. I heard that. I was astounded at how much money he makes. I I almost didn't, uh, because I wanted to feel really good about you. I didn't want to listen to your Sedaris episode and think it was better and be sad. 
than mine. <laughs> they're, they're just different, I'll tell myself. Of course they're He was wonderful. So gracious. He's a great guy. He sent me a postcard. Yes, he sends postcards. If someone were to start with one of your books, which one? A grown-up. Um, I guess you're not doing it right is probably the best place to start. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a memoir about relationships and uh, my relationships anyway. And, uh, it's probably a very good introduction to me. And last, uh, a stand-up bit or, or, you know, or something shortish that is, you, you know, encapsulable. Well, at the moment I'm telling a story um, that I started developing maybe close to, maybe close to a year ago, maybe less, about having a sandwich made at Subway. And it's now stretched, it's now getting to 15 or 20 minutes of me describing having a sandwich made at Subway. And uh, really, that's all that happens. And my, my, my dream would be to get it to a place where uh, the entire hour of my set is me describing having this single sandwich made at Subway. Nothing would would make me happier than than that is the entire hour long performance. So the world doesn't know this yet. I mean, except at live shows. It's is it? I I told a very abbreviated version of it on Colbert, and uh, but if you if you see me live, you'll see a much longer version of. It. I like it when you go long uh, with stuff. So look forward to it. Uh, the last thing I have is that a guy about 15 younger years younger than me who I know, kind of a wise-ass prankster of a guy, saw my Facebook post and really, he really said it like four times. He wanted me to tell you, Jimmy Crucis in Philadelphia loves you. I'm taking that sentiment from Jimmy Crucis and... Uh, welcoming it into my heart. And I can't return it because I don't know Jimmy, but I certainly will return a general love to the universe uh, in which Jimmy is included. Any last words on fame that I might not have thrown at you? It's not worth, it's not, it's, it's, it's unsatisfying. Thank you very much. Oh, Michael, are we good? I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, man. You too. Thanks so much. Bye, Jamie. Bye-bye. If you'd like to find out when Michael Ian Black is coming to your town to talk to you for an hour about ordering a Subway sandwich, his website is, as you might expect, michaelianblack.com. I'll have the links uh, to that Gothamist interview and the full-length uh, WTF podcast episode with Michael and Mark. It's wonderful, horrible stuff. I, I love it. And you can find that and all of our other episodes at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's the numerals 15-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Next up is writer and performer Beth Lissick. Ed Patnode's The Engineer, and Christian Kandari made the music. This is 15 Minutes. I'm... Jamie Berger.